Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Between constant ransomware and medical device software scares, the healthcare sector has become a scary place for cybersecurity. Now the Health and Human Services Department is asking organizations in the healthcare sector to adopt what it calls high-impact cybersecurity practices. We get detail now from the Deputy Director of the Office of Preparedness, Brian Mazanek. Mr. Mazanek, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. And we should point out you're back in your role at HHS rather than your prior role at the Government Accountability Office. So nice to see people move around and still be on the show. And this is the issuing organization for these standards is the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. What's coming from whom here? The Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, is an operating division within HHS that is focused on assisting the country in preparing for and responding to and recovering from public health emergencies and disasters. The role we play as it pertains to cybersecurity is we serve as the lead for the department's role as Sector Risk Management Agency, or SRMA, for the healthcare and public health HPH sector. So there's 16 critical infrastructure sectors that have been designated. The healthcare and public health one is one of them, and we serve as sort of that quarterback or belly button within the department. We don't do everything across the department. There are other key players like the Food and Drug Administration for medical devices, but we coordinate all of that as the SRMA lead and are the central, quote-unquote, one-stop shop for the department in, in doing so. And there have been some highly celebrated, highly recognized ransomware attacks on healthcare delivering organizations, hospitals. Is this part of what's prompting the idea of uh, cybersecurity performance goals? Absolutely. So while we've been doing a number of things to try to help the healthcare and public health sector bolster its cybersecurity posture to be able to deal with these threats, the threats themselves have been increasing in intensity and sophistication, particularly, as you mentioned, ransomware attacks. We're focused on all things related to cybersecurity in the sector, and obviously any malicious activity is of concern, but the ransomware attacks are particularly concerning because they lock down certain systems within a hospital, for example, and demand payment or a ransom. And when they do so, they really pose an immediate threat to patient health and safety. So imagine going to a hospital or an emergency room, and if they can't use the MRI machine or access your electronic medical records to know you're allergic to penicillin, obviously the consequences there are pretty acute. And we believe cybersecurity is patient safety, and we're very focused on that. But to your question, absolutely, the ransomware activity has been increasing year over year. I just saw this morning that this was not specific to our sector, but broadly across the board, an industry report came out that identified that the victims of ransomware attacks paid over $1.1 billion dollars in 2023, and that's compared to about $570 million in 2022. So criminal actors, there are state actors in the mix, and the healthcare and public health sector in particular, for reasons I kind of just alluded to, is particularly vulnerable. There's a lot of pressure to, frankly, pay the ransom. So it's a sector that has historically paid. And it's also a place where you have a lot of legacy medical devices, a very complicated environment, a sector that is also, especially some of the rural and critical access hospitals really don't have big margins. I wanted to ask you this, too. We learned a couple of years ago in the Colonial Pipeline episode that there is a connection, a crossover between operational technology, which has traditionally maybe not been on the Internet, and the information systems that are on the Internet in sectors. It sounds like that's true in the healthcare sector also. You've got this big operational hospital device complex, 
but then they have standard information systems with everybody on email, et cetera. It's an incredibly complicated environment. You have billing as well, which is very important for the hospital system. So any of those systems are affected. And often with a ransomware attack, if a, an actor gets into it, they will move para, in a parallel way across systems, too, if they have that ability, and will lock down multiple things. It won't necessarily just be the X-ray machines, for example, that are down, but it's a broader consequence for the system. And we've seen, unfortunately, more and more ransomware attacks that aren't targeting a single hospital or a healthcare delivery organization. We see those, but we're seeing attacks that are affecting hospitals, networks that are multi-state, dozens of hospitals. So very, very concerning. And that's why, to go back to the cybersecurity performance goals, that's why we felt like we needed to do more. And the department is undertaking a number of steps to re-level up our activity to better support the sector as this threat increases. We are speaking with Brian Mazinek, Deputy Director of the Office of Preparedness at HHS. That's at Health and Human Services. Therefore, what are the standards you're pushing and how are you getting the word out to the organizations? We have heard, as we've worked with our partners in the sector itself and elsewhere, we've heard that there's a need to harmonize cybersecurity standards. There's confusion over which standards to follow, which apply most directly to the healthcare and public health sector. So we undertook this effort in partnership with industry that this was informed by their input on on other efforts and, and products that we've developed in the past to develop these healthcare um, and public health sector cybersecurity performance goals. They're intended to provide both a floor as well as an advanced level of guidance that is clear, accessible at all all different levels. You don't have to necessarily be an an IT administrator to pick these up and use them to minimum standards that address a number of the threats that we've seen based on our work in the sector. So you can be better able to prevent. And then if you are affected by a ransomware attack, respond to and recover from those attacks. And we break them into essential goals, which again, are kind of view them as sort of that floor that are the baseline that we think everyone in the sector should adhere to. These are voluntary, but we think these are good best practices. And then we have those enhanced goals, which are for the better resourced or more capable entities to really do even more to prepare for these kind of cyber attacks. And by the way, as more health organizations offer telehealth, that kind of mixes the ecosystems of their own and those of everybody that could be on a telehealth session. Yes, absolutely. And these cybersecurity performance goals for the sector will help in all of those contexts. They will harden systems in a variety of ways to protect the sector. And do you have tailored, let's say, standards for some small clinic that has maybe three medical doctors there and a few nurses and a couple of administrators versus, you know, a mass general type of situation. Yeah. So the essential goals are really targeted to those less well-resourced or smaller entities as sort of the, again, the floor, really the place to start if you need to make more progress in this area. Um, Something that informed our development of these cybersecurity performance goals is another resource we've developed called the Hiccup, the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Practices Guide, which we developed jointly with industry. And we map the CPGs directly to those as well as other existing guidance. So again, to simplify, we show how this is all connected and they culminate in this one reference that you can pick up and know what to do. But the Hiccup, which informed a lot of this, actually also breaks out a lot of its resources, its how-to guides by large and small entity. So it's another way, if you're small, to know where do you get started in this space. And we mapped in the CPG document itself, we mapped with links directly to all of those resources to make it as user-friendly as possible. Because again, we heard from the sector, there needs to be simplicity here, you need to understand what you need to do and, and eliminate some of the noise and confusion in this space. 
Because in theory, you know, there is one ecosystem, just like, you know, how many roads are there in the United States? Well, just one, because they're all connected and you can drive anywhere to anywhere. And as more interdependent technologies, such as through the electronic health records, come among healthcare organizations, something happens at a local clinic, and all of a sudden you're in a hospital, your electronic record goes there, there's much more, I guess, chance for cross-fertilization of malware happening in the sector. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an ecosystem is the right word for it. And we do see some of the same ransomware actors attacking the same vulnerability repeatedly in different entities, which is, again, why one of our first, actually the first essential goal that you'll see when you look at the CPGs is mitigating known exploited vulnerabilities to reduce the likelihood of an actor rippling through multiple hospitals that all have the same vulnerability because for, for whatever reason. So ab- absolutely, it's an ecosystem. And there are also cross-sector dependencies too. So if the power Uh, sector goes out. That has an effect as well. We work closely with our interagency partners, the other sector risk management agencies on that front as well. And you said they're voluntary. Of course, these are organizations that are in the private sector. Is there any kind of incentive that you can give them? I mean, do they get a gold star to put on the door? Hey, we're cyber secure. Yeah, a great point. Again, we really want to emphasize these are voluntary cybersecurity practices that we think will help our partners understand the key practices to secure their systems, improve their cybersecurity. But we know we need to do more to encourage and support their adoption. So this was actually, if you go back to December, we rolled out a new roadmap for the department. This rollout of the cybersecurity performance goals, the CPGs, was one of four pillars of our new roadmap. The others, and they are all sort of interlocking and mutually supporting, the second pillow was to provide more resources to incentivize the implementation of these practices. So we are working right now with Congress to obtain new authority and funding to administer financial support and incentives for domestic hospitals to implement these high-impact cybersecurity practices. That was the second pillar of the strategy, so they're very much interconnected. And by the way, just as an aside, what is the progress of electronic health records in the industry relative to, say, 10, 12 years ago? Yeah, there's enormous adoption, and it's been a a tremendous uh, journey. The the perverse kind of dynamic, though, unfortunately, is as we've taken advantage of that and and pushed the adoption of, of EHRs across the enterprise that does make it harder for entities to navigate a, a cybersecurity ransomware attack that, that locks down the EHR. So again, going back to the cybersecurity performance goals, one of the things on the enhanced goals pertains to the incident planning and preparedness, which is all about consistently maintaining, drilling, updating your cyber incident response plans, which should include how you operate on downtime procedures with paper records. So if your system is locked out, how do you provide essential care? And for some new physicians and medical providers, that's a new thing for them that they need to really learn and exercise. So that is also, again, is another example, something that's embedded inside these cybersecurity performance goals to prepare you to navigate that paper-driven world that many folks aren't familiar with because of the success of EHR adoption. Yes, I remember when the main piece of information technology that a doctor would have was a fountain pen. (laughs) Yep. Sometimes that's a critical tool in navigating a ransomware attack. All right. Yeah, writing checks. Brian Mazanek is Deputy Director of the Office of Preparedness at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.